Let me ask you to open your Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 11, and our reading today will be verses 11 through 12. And I'm actually going to read this out of the New International Version. And the reason why is I think it does a better job of translating, in this case, the original language than does the ESV. And I know that's almost heretical to some people, but it is possible. (laughs) It actually, by starting the passage in the English Standard Version, by faith Sarah, it is attributing to Sarah spermatikos. Now, what is spermatikos? It's sperm. Sarah doesn't have sperm. Abraham does. Sarah has eggs. I don't want to get into that. But just to tell you that it's inconsistent, you end up attributing to Sarah something that is not hers. Sarah does get commended for her faith, as weak as it was, like ours. But uh, I'm going to read from the NIV, and I have good reason for doing so. So please hear now the word of the Lord. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, we do pray today that the word would go forth in power, that the word that goes forth from your mouth will prosper where you send it and will accomplish your purposes. And we pray that the purposes you have will be gracious and good like you are. And we pray that you would give life today to people who come and listen with ears that long to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church through your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two great creative minds in history. There are more than two, but there are two I'm going to mention today. One is William Shakespeare, And the other one is Mel Brooks. (laughs) They both said the same thing, but in different ways. Listen to what Shakespeare says. Each new morn, new widows howl. New orphans cry. New sorrows strike heaven on the face. Mel Brooks said, life stinks. (laughs) Basically the same message. Shakespeare is certainly a little more elegant and verbose, but basically the same message. Each new morn, widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven's face. Now we've been talking about, especially with Abraham, the gap that exists between what God has promised and our experience in between the gap of promise and fulfillment. In other words, there is a period between what God promises and what God accomplishes in everybody's life. 
And that period between promise and fulfillment has one of the worst four-letter words in English. It is called wait. W-A-I-T. Wait. Waiting on God. And in Abraham's life, you're going to see this morning, that he is the poster child, the paradigm for a person who waited for God to fulfill a very significant promise in his life that he repeated to him over and over. And it was years upon years of waiting in Abraham's behalf. And life wasn't that great while he was waiting. Uh, Life, according to the Bible, is not charmed for most people. And so we live in a gap between God's promise and we find ourselves asking the question, is this problem I'm facing right now ever really going to be resolved? Is it ever going to go away? What if, far from the situation resolving itself, something else happens and it becomes much worse? What becomes of me and your promises then? And we know that the gap between what God promises and what we experience causes problems for us. We become vulnerable to the whispers and the outright lies of the serpent, the accuser of the brethren, the enemy of our souls. The word of the Lord came to Abraham in Genesis 15 and he tells him, Do not be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield and your very great reward. But in practical terms, the promise seemed as far away from fulfillment as ever. And so Abraham is not a man who had everything handed to him on a silver platter exactly when he expected it to to get it. No, Abraham was a person just like we are. And in that period between promise and fulfillment, while we're waiting, we are extremely vulnerable to a very significant temptation. And that temptation is, number one, to doubt that God is going to come through for us because we're just not the kind of people he comes through for. Some people seem to get it easily, but not us. So the temptation is first for us to doubt that God's going to work on our behalf. And secondly, follows suit, we try to fix it. We come up with a plan B, and we actually make it seem like plan B came from the Lord. Well, obviously, Abraham is old. He's as good as dead. His wife is 90 years old. Not too many 99-year-old men and 90-year-old women have a baby, do they? And so they're sitting around thinking, well, maybe there's another way. Maybe we're missing something here. Maybe God didn't really say this. And so we need to come up with a plan that we can accomplish that will fulfill it. And maybe this is what God wants us to do. And so we go about fixing it, and we end up with a big fat Ishmael of our own making. And on the way to better things get much worse. And so Abraham's life is a paradigm. It is a model. He is the poster person in the Bible for someone who trusts God. But he's a flawed man. But the thing I like the most about the book of Hebrews, you don't see anything about the flaws in the book of Hebrews. Why? Because the blood of Jesus washes all that away. He gets commended for what? His faith. 
And it's a marvelous thing, a marvelous thing. And so what I want us to do this morning is look at three things. I want us to look at the grief Abraham experienced as he wrestled with God's promise. I want you to look and see with me the faith that is willing to wait. And then thirdly, I want you to see how God intervenes in a gracious way that is beyond anything humanity can accomplish. And so that's what I want us to spend our time thinking about today as we go forward with this text uh, here. And so there is this struggle in Abraham over the promise. And I, I want you to look at Genesis 15 for me because you can't really see it in Hebrews, but it's clearly laid out in the book of Genesis and chapter 15. I'm hearing a few leaves rattling, but I suppose most of you have it on your phone. And so in Genesis 15, I've already made reference to the fact that God comes to Abraham, who is at this time Abram. His name has not changed yet. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But listen to the next few words. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it for him as righteousness. What an amazing thing. But here's what I want you to see. The promise has already been made when Abraham's 75 or 76 now he's like 10 years later, 86, and God had not yet fulfilled the promise, and God speaks to him and says, fear not, don't be afraid. Yahweh knows that Abraham is deeply concerned and experiencing trial over the fact that the promise has not been fulfilled. And so he knows that Abraham is in trouble, and so he wants to give him a word of assurance uh, that would disturb his lack of assurance. Abraham's problem here is the problem of time. And part of verse 2 is very difficult, but we can reasonably translate these verses as, Then Abram said, Lord Yahweh, what will you give me? And I keep on going childless. And the son of Meshag, my house, he is the Damascus fellow, Eleazar. So Abraham said, See, to me you've not given seed, and behold, a son of my household will inherit me. Now this is the first time Abraham speaks to God, recorded in Genesis, and the problem of the passage of time without fulfillment of the promises, he says, I keep on going childless. He has the promise, but nothing has changed in his circumstances. Nothing. Nothing's improved one whit. So the reassurance from God in verse 1 does not sedate Abram, but stirs up a complaint. 
And Yahweh had promised to make him a great nation. He had promised to give Canaan to uh, Abraham's seed, but there's no sign of a seed yet. And please note that Abraham is not complaining of the lack of earthly comforts. After all, he did have possessions and was wealthy. But Yahweh had promised him a seed, and through that seed to bring blessing on the nations of the earth, and apparently Abram wanted to see Yahweh's saving plan get on the charts. As Ian Duggett says, Abram wasn't simply in love with babies or salivating over Abram Jr. with a heart-melting smile. Abram had the promise, but nothing had changed. Faith faces the passage of time, and that time can be wearying to us. But this very struggle over the promise can provide a ray of encouragement. For one thing, it shows us that the freedom our faith has to complain to God. Now let me speak carefully about this, because this can be easily misunderstood. There's a difference between lamenting before God and struggling over a promise and murmuring and complaining and blaming him. Here, Abram just opens up his heart and shares his heart with the Lord, and his heart is distressed. He doesn't rant. He doesn't rave. He doesn't shake his fist. He doesn't stomp his foot like a spoiled brat throwing a hissy fit. You can sense in his attitude, in his address to God, he says, Lord Yahweh. He's compliant, but he has questions. He has deep questions. And he realizes he's a servant of Yahweh and that Yahweh is sovereign. But there may be candor, but there's also proper respect and submission and a recognition of place. And there's something more. The complaint itself is actually a sign of faith. I suppose many might think, oh no, I should shush up. Surely I ought not to express my quandaries before the face of God. But when Abram brings his difficulties over the promise before God, it shows that the promises of God really matter to him. Only faith would go before God and bring his questions. Unbelief spits on the promises and walks away and dismisses them. Abraham is struggling. He is wrestling with God. And so can you. Without fear and without condemnation when you are struggling. Let's say you're single and you want to be married and you're praying that God would bring a person into your life and it hasn't happened with you yet. Can you go before God and share your heart with confidence that you're struggling over that? Or let's say that people at your job keep getting promoted over you even though everyone else affirms that you are the better candidate. And you're wondering, why is it not coming through for me? Why? What, what is it? What's the holdup? Or you're looking for anything your heart desires, and none of these things are wrong as long as you don't latch onto them in an idolatrous way, but you're looking for the salvation of a person in your life, a child, a relative, a friend, a co-worker, and you're crying out to God and nothing is happening. It seems like the heavens are brass, that God is deaf, and nothing is happening. But can you lament before God? And you can. It's an expression of faith. But God does something wonderful for Abraham here. He repeats the promise 
But he takes him outside, and he does something that is amazing. He brings him outside in verse 5, and he tells him to look skyward, and then he says, count the stars if you are able to count them. Now, that's a visible sign. He says, go outside. Now, in, in this city, you're not going to see very many stars. But when I lived in Water Valley, Mississippi, on Pine Valley Road, sounds like a soap opera, doesn't it? Pine Valley Road, where something weird could happen. We used to go out and lay in the front yard and look up at the stars, and I've never seen so many stars in my life. And so, at this point, God doesn't use logic with Abraham. He doesn't give him a lecture on systematic theology on the doctrine of God and his wisdom and his faithfulness and his glory. No, he says, go down and look it up and try to count the stars, my man. He paints him a picture. Picture's worth a thousand words, huh? It's a visible sign. Then how many, that's how many your seed is going to be. That was the spoken word interpreting the sign. What we have here is a matter of graphics rather than logic. Yahweh seems more concerned right here to impress Abram with the promise than simply to express it to him. Most of us acknowledge a differ the difference a picture makes. For example, you can read a recipe in a recipe book, a cookbook. And you can read it, and you say, oh, that sounds interesting. The ingredients look great. Or you can open a magazine where they have the recipe in the bottom uh, corner, and then the spread of the recipe made is in the pages. And you look at that food, and immediately it stirs you. The picture stirs you. It speaks to you. You become hungry. You want it. You see it in all its multicolored gastronomical glory. And it stirs you inside. And you say, that looks good. That sounds good. But boy, that's just scrumptious. I want it. I want to eat it. And that seems to be what Yahweh is doing with Abram here. The stargazing, star counting episode does not constitute a rational argument. But Yahweh seeks to lay hold of the imagination of Abram's faith. It doesn't wait, make the word of promise any more certain, but more vivid. It is as if God is saying to Abraham, here, let me see if I can give you a picture. And what a glorious picture it is to encourage this struggling man. But it doesn't stop there. Because we know, as we look at the life of Abraham, that life goes on. And people who are struggling with the promise need some sort of encouragement, some sort of word from God. Sometimes God deals with us by way of promises to lift our eyes above the realm of our circumstances and to look into the heavens, so to speak, to get God's perspective on it, to grow in contentment. And sometimes God deals with us through promises because he's moving us along. He's directing us on a journey. You remember last week I talked about the lumberjack who was going to cut down all the trees in a particular forest. And he noticed the bird kept making nest as, and tree after tree. And he would take his axe and take the flat part of it and whack the tree as hard as he could to get the mother to move the nest 
so the babies could be born somewhere more secure. And that's what God does to us in our journey as we struggle with the promises. He's sanctifying us. He's sanctifying us. He's moving us. But the Bible is very, very sympathetic in its expression toward our struggles. And Abraham and Sarai receive assurance of the covenant in chapter 15, but then chronology gets in the way. Time goes on and nothing changes. And this is where faith waits. Time goes on. Nothing changes. In Genesis chapter 16, this account of one of the fainting fits of Abram and Sarah's faith in which they fancy they have a solution to one of God's problems. God seems to have what Ralph Dale Davis calls the slows. We're in a hurry. God is not. Does it ever seem to you that God has no interest in your timetable? Does it ever bother you that you're sitting there going, man, you know, I'm such and such an age. Life is passing me by. And, you know, I'm not living my best life now. And and I'm struggling and it, it seems darker and more and more hopeless. But in Genesis chapter 16, you got your Bible open. God comes again. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. Now, how much time had passed here? Uh, uh, another great number of years. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now, I'm going I'm to get to this quick because we got potluck and communion coming. So I'm just going to give you the shorter version. Sarah comes up with a brilliant idea. Look, everybody in the ancient Near East does this. If you can't have progeny, then you take Sarah, my servant, as your concubine. And you go into her, I'm going to give her to you, you take her, you go into her, have a child, and that'll be the heir. It's simple, it's easy, everybody does it. This is probably, you know, I had a vision last night, I had a dream, and this is what I, God told me. No, it isn't, but Sarah made sense to Abraham. And Abraham, the dummy, <laughs> goes, yeah, that's a good idea. Now, if I had time, I would take you to Genesis 3 and, and Genesis 16, and you will see that the language is almost parallel to the point of when Eve saw that the forbidden fruit was good to the eye, she took it, and she did what? Gave it to her husband, and he ate. And then what happened? Sin. They realized they were naked. They tried to cover their nakedness, what happens in this case? Well, Hagar conceives, and then Sarah can't stand that there's a fertile woman in the house. You know, it was all her idea, and after it was done, it was all Abraham's fault. Is there a man here who can identify with that? It's all your fault, Abraham. You should have had the sense not to do this. And she was jealous of Sarah. And there was, this is a low point. Weeks roll on, they become months, nothing changes. So Sarah judges that it's time for a little human intervention. She has a come to Jesus moment with Abraham, says, look, this is what we're going to do. 
And all it did was create a horrible mess. She had the fix for the problem of her barrenness. It seemed plausible. It was a good proposal. Look now, Yahweh has prevented me from giving birth. Go in, please, to my servant girl, and perhaps I can be built up from her. This at least shows that the people aspect of the promises did matter to her. But Sarah must have begun to think that it was for Abraham and somebody else to receive this promise. And so they did it. They tried the Hagar method. And by the way, Ishmael is still persecuting Isaac in our history today. But the, the writer gives us a telling description. It seems the writer is despondent in Genesis 16. Two times he tells us that Sarai is the wife of Abram. Then he mentions the chronological difficulty, the 10-year wait in verse 3. Then he notes she gave Hagar to Abram, and he makes it a point to call her Sarai's husband. But the writer is underlining the pathos of the whole affair. By use of wife and husband, it is as if he is bemoaning that a proper relation is being intruded upon by this new arrangement. Does it hurt any less because it was 4,000 years ago? No. But the Bible has great sympathy for people who try to fix it. God doesn't end it. God doesn't say it's over. You'll never have. Well, let's look in chapter 16 and see what he does say. Sarah said, um, I'm in verse 5, Sarah said to Abram, May the wrong done in me be on you. <laughs> I gave you my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on, him with, on uh, me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. In other words, Abram said, Ain't my problem, it's your problem. Deal with it, honey. That's what he said. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled. And we know the angel of the Lord goes after her and comforts her in that regard. But we see what happens when they try to fix it, rather than waiting on the promises of God. Often in the Bible, we will read and see how disappointing the people of God act. But the Hagar plan was successful on a human level, and it was just like that. Did Hagar sort of say something to Sarah? Hagar is so fertile, it must have sickened Sarah. Now everything's falling apart. There's a spring in Hagar's step, a strut to her walk, a disdain in her eye, and her mistress was looked on with contempt. But what does God do? He renews the covenant with his servant. Sometimes when we're eager to do God's work, we try to achieve God's promise by man's power. And so we take shortcuts, or we'll use manipulative techniques, or we'll try new things in order to prop up death. And whenever we do that, we bear illegitimate children like Ishmael, 
who were denied the blessing of God. But in Genesis 17, it tells us God returns to Abram. And when Ishmael was 13 years old, God challenged him even while renewing the promise. He says this, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. God was confronting Abram for his unbelief in sin. I am God Almighty, he said, forcefully asserting his worthiness to be trusted. Absolutely, he is omnipotent power to accomplish all he's promised. Walk before me and be blameless. And then he commanded, pressing his requirement of obedience, both rebuking Abram's unbelief and encouraging him to have new faith that God would confirm his covenant and multiply greatly. Abram was 99 years old, but his success with Hagar showed he could produce children. Therefore, it must have been a great encouragement to him, however astounding it may have been, when God declared henceforth his name would not be Abram any longer, but Abraham, Abraham, that is, the father of many people. And I'm sure Abraham would have said, no, my name is Ab-Ikad, the father of one. But God came to him again and told him he was going to fulfill the promise. And the point is that faith must wait upon the Lord. Abraham was 75 when he set out for Canaan, 86 when he gave in and had a child with Hagar, and 99 when God sent him back on his feet with a new promise and a new name. Faith receives God's promise. Faith waits on God's fulfillment, sometimes for very long. When you have time later on, read Spurgeon's comment in the uh, int introduction to, or in the front of the bulletin. But finally, I want to get to the grace part. Hebrews 11 and 11 seems to have a specific episode in Abraham's life because it includes Sarah's faith that also received the promise. And I told you earlier most people believe, most scholars that are contemporary believe that Abraham is the main subject. Yet, it was together that the sorrowful pair found grace. Abraham was 99 when God renewed the promise, yet he did not have the child of promise. God had changed his name. He also changed his name from Sarai to Sarah, a name which means what? Princess to indicate that the promise still dealt with her. Yet Abraham would father a nation, not through uh, Ishmael. It would be through his legitimate wife, Sarah, despite her advanced age, 90 years, and a barren womb. God said, as for Sarah, your wife, your, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be his, her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she will become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. All out of Genesis 17. God insisted that Abraham's offspring would be born through Sarah is a sign that salvation is always by grace alone. God promised great blessings to Abraham in terms of offspring. We have mentioned the embarrassment he must have suffered in going so long without ch uh, children. Abraham's childlessness brought God's covenant into question, God's faithfulness, and even his plan of salvation to send the seed through whom the serpent's head would be crushed. 
How then would the world be blessed? How would salvation come? Would it be not by natural means? Would it be by works or supernatural means, by grace alone? And we find God's plain answer in his promise regarding Sarah. She shall become nations. God said this of a 90-year-old wrinkled woman, kings of people will come from her. On the surface, it was laughable, laughable, ironic. And Abraham did laugh at the idea. And the verses that follow, we find that Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? But God said, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you will call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. This is how God designed salvation to work in a manner that confounds human expectation and leaves all the glory to himself alone. In Genesis 18, God makes that same promise again, this time in the presence of Sarah, and she laughed. She laughed too. And Genesis 21 tells us that Abraham went to her and she bore a son and they named him Isaac. Guess what Isaac means? Laughter. Laughter. That's what his name means. They no longer laughed in unbelief but cried tears of joy in renewed wonder at the power and faithfulness of the promise-keeping God. Hebrews eleven twelve tells us what can happen when faith waits upon God's promise? Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars in the heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the shore. Fighting through their natural tendency toward unbelief, Abraham and Sarah trusted the Lord. And it's wonderful in Hebrews 11 says nothing about their unbelieving laughter and complaints, sins that were washed away by the blood of the Lord. But it speaks about their faith, which God remembered. Believing God, they came together as husband and wife, and by the power of grace, brought life from a dead womb, bringing salvation that is all of grace. In that manner, the barren womb, which we see a good bit in Scripture, signifies salvation by grace alone all throughout the Bible. Isaiah could boldly write, Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry al aloud, You who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. This rose to a new level when another descendant of Abraham, the special seed that God had in mind all along, was born not of a barren woman, but a virgin. The barren womb speaks of human failure and weakness and futility. The virgin womb speaks of a work that belongs to God alone, in which human works have no place at all. A rock not cut with human hands. God spoke to Joseph about a child from his virgin fiancé's womb. You shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The virgin birth tells us 
that the means by which the gospel produces its ends are never natural nor man-controlled. They are not things we can manipulate for our own success or that we can rely upon. The blessings promised Abraham could come about only if a barren and elderly woman could conceive and give birth. And when it comes to Christ, we find that there will be salvation from our sins only if a virgin girl can do the same. That Sarah conceived and gave birth and that Mary did the same tells us that the salvation we trust is of God from first to the last and the glory to his name alone. Therefore, left to ourselves, uh, we are hopeless. As we trust ourselves to God who gives life to the dead and produces blessing from the barren womb, even salvation through the virgin womb that bore our Lord Jesus Christ. Surely this exhorts us to turn to God with all of our need and all of our longings, trusting his might and waiting upon his precious promises we receive in Scripture. Our greatest inheritance is God himself, and his greatest promise is this, I will be your God, and you will be my people. It is God himself we receive as we rest upon his promises, and it is our hearts that he is seeking through this long and sometimes difficult life of faith that he calls us to wait upon him. God says to Abraham, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. So as you persevere in faith today, waiting upon God's promises, and I don't know what in your life where you are, what you're struggling with, what, what you're anxious about, what you fear, what you're depressed about, what you're worried about, what is it that's burdening your soul, just a heavy weight upon you. Draw great encouragement from God's dealings with Abraham. He's the same God Abraham had. The same God who put life in the womb of a woman who was barren and enabled her to conceive and bear Isaac. The same God who created out of the womb of the Virgin Mary the human nature of Christ. As the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, she conceived and the union of two natures and one person of Jesus. God waits for our extremities to come through and show his glory so that no one will doubt God did it. And if you're one of his children, that's what you want more than anything else, that God's glory will be seen and people say, the only way that could have ever happened would be that God did it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is encouraging to us. It is powerful. It lifts us up. It gives us life. It gives us hope. It increases our faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And we pray today for those who struggle every single day waiting that you would hold them up, that their faith would be stretched out as they trust in you to be 
faithful because you are faithful as the one who has called us. Now, Father, may we give back to you a portion of that which you've entrusted to us as we worship you today and recognize your goodness and mercy. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.